all you spooky listeners. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Morbid Curiosity, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Nicole. I'll be taking you through some of the most heinous, shocking, and morbid crimes, including, of course, the paranormal. Listener discretion is advised. Don't forget to check me out on Instagram at morbid, period, curiosity, period, TC podcast, where you can find photos related to our cases, including crime scene photos on occasion, of course, with the exception of postmortem photos. Thank you for tuning in. Enjoy. Welcome back, guys. I missed you. It's been a week. I hope you guys have been doing great. I hope you had a great week and a weekend. Um, today, I have chose um, the Summerton Man. Uh, a lot of you probably already know that case, but I have yet to cover it here on Morbid Curiosity. And I wanted to get into it today. Um, I did see there was some updates um, recently over the past month or so. So we have some more information for you guys. Um, it's a pretty interesting case. I've been following it for a good bit. Um, but I didn't want to have another um, cold case, I guess you could say. Because we've, we've done a little bit of those. Um, so now that they've got some updates, we'll get into it. Um, grab your snacks, go to the bathroom, do what you got to do. Um, and let's get into it. It's going to be a long one. Hope you enjoy. On December 1st, 1948, at 6.30 a.m., the police were contacted after the body of a man was discovered on Somerton Park Beach near Glenelg, about seven miles southwest of Adelaide, South Australia. The man was found lying in the sand across from the crippled or disabled children's home, which was on the corner of the Esplanade and Bickford Terrace. He was lying back with his head resting against the seawall, with his legs extended and his feet crossed. It was believed that the man had died while sleeping. An unlit cigarette was on the right collar of his coat. A search of his pockets revealed an unused second-class rail ticket from Adelaide to Henley Beach, a bus ticket from the city that may have not been used, a narrow aluminum comb that had been manufactured in the USA, a half-empty packet of juicy fruit chewing gum, an Army Club cigarette packet, which contained seven cigarettes of a different brand, which is uh, Consistus, I think is how you pronounce it. I did look it up. Um, and a quarter full box of Bryant and May matches. Witnesses who came forward said that on the evening of November 30th, they had seen an individual resembling the dead man lying on his back in the same spot where the corpse was later found. A couple who saw him around 7 p.m., noted that they saw him extend his right arm to its fullest extent and then drop it limply. Another couple who said they saw him from around 7.30 or to 8, during which time the streetlights had come on, recounted that they did not see him move during the half hour in which he was in view, although they did have the impression that his position had changed. Although they commented between themselves that it was odd that he was not reacting to the many of bugs, including mosquitoes, they had thought it was more likely that maybe he was drunk or asleep, 
and thus did not investigate further. One of the witnesses told the police she observed a man looking down at the sleeping man from the top of the steps that led to the beach. Witnesses said the body was in the same position when the police viewed it. Another witness came forward in 1959 and reported to the police that he and three others had seen a well-dressed man carrying another man on his shoulders along Somerton Park Beach the night before the body was found. A police report was made by Detective Don O'Daughtry. According to the pathologist John Burton Cleland, the man was of Britisher appearance and thought to be aged around 40 to 45 years old, and he was in top physical condition. Now, he was described as 5'11", which is tall, gray eyes, fair to ginger hair, slightly gray around the tipples, so he was, um, you know, older, um, with broad shoulders, a narrow waist, hands and nails showed no signs of manual labor, big and little toes that met in a wedge shape, like those of a dancer or someone who wore boots with pointed toes. You can look that up. It's kind of almost like ballerina feet, if that makes sense. Um, and pronounced high calf muscles consistent with those who regularly wore boots or shoes with high heels or performed ballet. He was dressed in a white shirt, a red, white, and blue tie, brown trousers, socks, shoes, a brown knitted pullover, a fashionable gray and brown double-breasted jacket of reportedly American tailoring. All labels on his clothes had been removed, and he had no hat, um, which was kind of unusual for the 1948 time era, um, or wallet. He was also clean-shaven, carried no identification, which police led to believe that he had committed suicide. Finally, his dental records were not able to be matched to any known person, so they had trouble identifying him from day one. Um, an autopsy was conducted, and the pathologist estimated the time of death was around 2 a.m. on December 1st. So, during the autopsy of him, they found that the heart was normal. It was normal size, nothing wrong with the heart. Everything was good. There was um, some, like, small vessels not normally observed in the brain, but were easily just, um, it was, like, showing congestion. Is the best way to put it. There was congestion of the pharynx and the gullet was covered with whitening of superficial layers of the mucosa with a patch of ulceration in the middle of it. Um, the stomach was deeply congested. There was congestion in the second half of the dodenum. Um, there was blood mixed with the food in the stomach. Both kidneys were congested. Liver contained a great excess of blood in its vessels. The spleen was strikingly large. Um, they said about three times the normal size. Uh, there was deconstruction of the center of the liver lobules uh, revealed under the microscope, acute gastritis, hemorrhage, extensive congestion of the liver and the spleen, and the congestion to the brain. That is a mouthful. That is why I am not a doctor. Yeah. So, he had a lot going on um, as far as, like, a lot of congestion in the, in the organs and stuff. 
So the autopsy also showed that he had like a pastry three to four hours before his death, but tests failed to reveal any foreign substance in the body. Um, the pathologist, Dr. Dyer, concluded, quote, I am quite convinced the death could have not been natural. The poison I suggested was a barbiturate or a solubate hypnotic, end quote. So, although poisoning remained like a prime suspicion, um, the pastry was not believed to be the source. Other than that, the coroner was unable to reach a conclusion as to who the man was, uh, the cause of death, or whether the man was seen alive at Somerton Beach on the evening of November 30th, if that was the same guy. Um, as nobody had really seen his face at the time, the body was embalmed on December 10th, 1948, after the police were unable to get a positive identification. The police said that this was the first time that they knew that such an action was needed. Um, they also did, like, a death cast. Um, so they, like, did a mold from, like, I would say chest, shoulders up um, to help also try to identify him. Um, which there's photos of someone working on that. And then there's a photo of the cast after on Instagram, if you guys want to go check it out. So they did a casting of him as well after his death. Now, after his death on January 14, 1949, there was a staff at the Adeline um, railway station that discovered a brown suitcase that had its label removed. Now, when it had been checked into the station cloakroom after 11 a.m. on November 30th, 1948, it was believed that the suitcase was owned by the man found on the beach. Now, in the suitcase, there was a red checked dressing gown, size 7, red felt pair of slippers, <clears throat> excuse me, four pairs of underpants, pajamas, shaving items, a light brown pair of trousers, that had sand in the cuffs, an electrician's screwdriver, a table knife cut down into a sharp instrument, a pair of scissors with sharpened points, a small square of zinc thought to have been used as a protective sheath for the knife and scissors, and a stenciling brush as used by third officers on merchant ships for stenciling cargo. Now, also in the suitcase was a thread card of uh, excuse me, Barber brand orange wax thread of an unusual type, which is not available in Australia. It was the same as the used um, to repair the lining in the pocket of the trousers that the deceased man was wearing. So, all identification marks on the clothes had been removed, but police found the name T. Kane, which that's spelled K-E-A-N-E. -E. Um, it was on a tie. It was um, on the laundry bag and on an undershirt. So, along with three dry cleaning marks, which were 1171-7, 4393-7, and 3053-7. Police believe that whoever removed the tags on the clothing either overlooked the three items or purposely left the name Keen tags on the clothes, knowing Keen was not the dead man's name. So, 
With wartime rationing still in force, clothing was difficult to acquire at the time. So it was very common for people to take the name tags off of clothing when buying it secondhand, um, you know, to remove the name of the previous owner. Um, What was unusual was that there were no spare socks found in the suitcase. And no correspondence, although the police found pencils and unused letters stationary. Um, a search concluded that no T came was missing in any English-speaking country. A nationwide circulation of the dry cleaning marks also proved mm, no fruit. You know, it was fruitless. All that could be garnered from the suitcase was that um, the front gusset and Feather stitching on a coat found in the suitcase indicated it had been manufactured in the U.S. The coat had not been imported, indicating that the man had been to the U.S. um, or bought the coat from someone of a similar size who had been. Now, police checked incoming train records and believed that the man had arrived in Adelaide Railway Station by overnight train from either Melbourne, Sydney, or Port Augusta. Um, They speculated he had showered, shaved in the city baths. Um, There was no bath tickets on his body, though. So, like, he didn't... That wasn't really confirmed, I guess. Um, Before returning to the train station to purchase a ticket for the 10.50 a.m. train to Henley Beach, which, for whatever reason, he missed or just didn't catch. Um, He immediately checked his suitcase at the station. He checked in at the cloakroom before leaving um, the station and catching a city bus to uh, Glenelg. Yeah, that that one's a tongue twister for me, guys, so you'll have to look over me. Um, Although named City Bass, the Centra was not a public bathing facility, but rather a public swimming pool, just FYI. Um, the railway station bathing facilities were adjacent to the station cloakroom, which in itself was adjacent to the station's southern exit onto North Terrence. The city baths on King William Street were accessed from the station's northern exit via a laneway. There is no record of the station's bathroom facilities being unavailable on the day he arrived. Now, an inquest into the man's death conducted by Coroner Thomas Erskine Cleland um, commenced a few days following the discovery of the body, but was adjourned until June 17, 1949. Now, Thomas, as the investigating pathologist, re-examined the body and made a number of discoveries. He noted that the man's shoes were remarkably clean and had had appeared to have been recently polished, rather than in the condition expected of a man who had apparently been wandering around um, Glenegg all day. Um, He added that this evidence fit in with the theory that the body may have been brought to the Somerton Park Beach after his death, accounting for the lack of evidence of vomiting and convulsions, which were um, the two main um, physiological reactions to the poison that he had. Um, Thomas speculated that as none of the witnesses could positively identify the man they saw the previous night as the same man who was discovered the next morning, there remained the possibility that the man had died somewhere else and had been dumped on the beach. 
He stressed that this was purely speculation as all the witnesses believed it was definitely the same person. As the body was in the same place and lying in the same distinctive position, he also found no evidence indicating the identity of the deceased. Cedric Stanton Hicks, professor of psychology and pharmacology at the University of Adelaide, testified that of a group of drugs, variants of a drug in the group that he called number one, and in particular number two, were extremely toxic in a relatively small oral dose that would be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to identify, even if it had been suspected in the first instant. He gave uh, Thomas a piece of paper with the names of the two drugs, which was entered as Exhibit C-18. The names were not released to the public until 1980s, um, as at the time they were, you know, they were quite easily procurable by the ordinary individual. Um, from a chemist without the need to give a reason for the purchase. Um, the drugs were later publicly identified as um, digitalis and oavane, both like a um, cardinalide-type cardiac glycosides. Um, Hicks noted the f- only fact not found in relation to the body was evidence of vomiting. He then stated its absence was not unknown, but that he could not make a frank conclusion without it. Um, Hicks stated that if the death occurred seven hours after the man was last seen to move, it would imply a massive dose that could still be undetectable. Um, It was noted that the movement seen by witnesses at seven, remember when I said that he like... um, extended his arm and then went limp um that could have been like a last convulsion preceding death now early in the inquiry um thomas stated quote i would be prepared to find that he died from poison that the poison was probably a glucoside excuse me and that it is not accidentally administered but I cannot say whether it was administered by the deceased himself or by someone else, end quote. Despite these findings, he could not determine the cause of death of this man. Uh, Thomas remarked that if the body had been carried to its final resting place, then all the difficulties would disappear. After the inquest, a plaster cast was made of the man's shoulders and head, like I had said earlier, The lack of success in determining his identity and cause of death led the authorities to call it an unparalleled mystery and believe that the case of death may never be known. Okay, guys, so um, just saying the book that we're about to talk about is, um, I think, written in Arabic. (laughs) So... Um, as dyslexic as I am, I'm surprised I've not, you know, mixed my sentences up so far, but I promise you I've tried to say this like four times on recording and it's still, I still fuck it up. So just bear with me, laugh at me and you know, let's move on. Right? So around the same time as the inquest, a tiny piece of rolled up paper with the words to ma'am should, uh, or should. Printed on it was found in a fob pocket sewn within the man's trouser pocket. 
So, like, there was, like, a pocket in a pocket, I guess. Um, public library officials had translated it to mean the, like, ended or finished. Um, it was found on the last page of Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. And I will not be saying that again. I'm just going to be saying the book. Um, the paper's other side, though, like, the back was blank. And they tried to find a copy of the book that had the same blank side. Um, and they released a photograph of the paper to the public. Um, it had been identified and the book was found. Um, and there was a guy who had shown police a 1941 edition of the book. Um, and Detective Leanne... Um, Oh, excuse me, Detective Sergeant Lynn, who led the initial investigation, often protected the privacy of the witnesses, of course, and he always used like a fake name for them. So Leanne referred to the man who found the book by Ronald Francis. So that's his fictitious name to protect his identity. And he has never been officially identified, which eh, doesn't, I guess that doesn't really matter. Now, um, Francis had not considered uh, that the book may be connected to the case until he had seen an article about it, which they had put out. So, there is some uncertainty about the circumstances under which the book was found. One newspaper article refers to the book being found about a week or two before the body was found. Former South Australian police detective Gary Fetless, who dealt with the matter as a cold case, FYI, uh, reports that the book was found quote, just after the man was found on the beach at Somerton, end quote. The timing is significant as the man is presumed, based on the suitcase, to have arrived in Adelaide uh, the day before he was found on the beach. So, if the book was found one or two weeks before, it suggested that the man had visited previously or had been in Adelaide for a longer period most accounts state that the book was found in an unlocked car parked in Jetty Road, um, which was in uh, Glenelg. Glenelg? I can I can never say that word. Moving on. Um, either in the rear floor or in the back seat. Now, the theme of the book is one that should live life to the fullest, have no regrets when it ends. The poem's subject led police to theorize that the man had committed suicide by poisoning, although no evidence, um, you know, confirmed that theory. The book was missing the words, Tamam should, on the last page, which had a blank reverse, um, and microscopic tests indicated that the piece of paper was from the page torn from the book. So, that was the correct book that they found in the car. Also, in the back of the book were faint, um indentations representing five lines of text in capital letters the line excuse me the second line has been struck out a fact considering significant due to its similarities to the fourth line and the possibility that it represents an error in encryption so there was like a encrypted code i guess um which i posted a instagram photo you guys can go look at um, now, in the book, it is unclear whether the first line begins with an M or a W, but it is widely believed to be the letter W. Um, owing to distinctive difference when compared to, you know, the letter M. There appears to be a deleted 
or underlined line of text that reads M-L-I-A-O-I. Um, although the last character in the line of text looks like an L, it is fairly clear on inspection of the image um, that this is formed from an I and the extension um, of the line used to delete or underline that line of text. Also, the other L has a curve to the bottom part of the letter, um, there is also an X above the last O in the code, and it is not known if this is significant to the code or not. That probably made absolutely no sense to you guys, as it did to me when I first read it. So, if you will, hop on over to Instagram. Um, it's, you know, morbid, period, curiosity, period, TC podcast has our um, coffin logo, all that kind of stuff. But there is a photo of the code over there. Or you can Google it, but I prefer you go look at Instagram because we have some pretty cool photos. Anyway, so let's move on to the attempts to decode that. So, initially the letters were thought to be words in a foreign language. Before it was realized, it was a code. Code experts were called in to decipher the lines, but couldn't. Um, and amateurs also attempted to crack the code. In 1978, following a request from ABC TV's journalist Stuart Littlemore, Department of Defense um, cryptographers analyzed the handwritten text. The cryptographers reported that it would be impossible to provide a satisfactory answer. If the text were encrypted message, its um, brevity meant that it had excuse me, insufficient symbols from which a clear meaning could be extracted and the text could be meaningless, product of a disturbed mind. In 2004, retired detective Gary Fetless suggested in Sunday Mail article that the final line, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the letters here because that's what it is. I-T-T-M-T-S-A-M-S-T-G-A-B could possibly stand for the initials of It's Time to Move to South Australia, Mosley Street. Um, and Jessica Thompson lived in Mosley Street, which is the main road through Glenegg. Um, and I know I'm pronouncing that word wrong. <laughs> That's just how it comes out of my mouth. Anyway, um, in 2009 to 2011, Derek Abbott's team concluded that it was most likely that each letter was the first letter of a word. A 2014 analyst um, by John Rilling, Rilling strongly supports the theory that the letters suggest, uh, excuse me, the letters consist of the initials of some English text but finds no match for these in a large survey of literature and concludes that the letters were likely written as a form of shorthand, not as a code, and that the original text can likely never be determined. So a second ago, I mentioned a Jessica Thompson. So we're going to talk about her and Alf Boxel. Um, now, there was a phone number that was found in the back of the book 
that um, belonged to a nurse named Jessica Ellen Joe Thompson. Um, born 1921, deceased 2007. She was born Jessie Harkinson in Sydney suburb of Merrickville, um, New South Wales, and she lived on Mosley Street, like I said a minute ago, which was about 1,300 feet where the body was found um, on the beach. So, when she was interviewed by police, Thompson said that she did not know the dead man or why he would have her phone number and chose to visit her suburb on the night of his death. However, she also reported that at the same time, sometime in the late 1948, an unidentified man had attempted to visit her and even asked the next-door neighbor about her. In his book on the case, Jerry Fetless stated that he interviewed Thompson in 2002 and found that she was either being evasive or she did not wish to talk about anything about the man or anything related to. Um, Feltless believed Thompson knew the Summerton's man's identity. Thompson's own daughter, Kate, in a TV interview in 2014 with Channel 9's 60 Minutes, said that she also believed her, no her mother knew who the man was. So, in news media, books, and other discussions of the case, Thomas, uh, excuse me, Thompson was frequently referred to by various names, including the nickname Justin, um, and names such as Teresa Johnson D. Powell. Now, Fetless in 2010 claimed that he was given permission by her family to disclose her name and her husband's, who was Prosper Thompson. Nevertheless, the names Fetless used in his book were fictitious. Fetless also stated that her family did not know of her connection with the case, and he agreed not to disclose her identity or anything that might reveal it. Thompson's real name was considered important because it may be the excuse me decryption key for the code that they had found. When she was shown the plaster cast of the Sumter Man by uh, Detective Lynn, Thompson said she could not identify the person depicted. According to Lynn, he described her reaction upon seeing the cast as completely taken aback to the point of giving the appearance that she was about to faint. In an interview many years later, Paul Lawson, the technician who made the cast, was present when Thompson viewed it. Noted that after looking at the bus, she immediately looked away and would not look at it again. Now, Thompson also said that while she was working at Royal North Shore Hospital in Sydney during World War II, she had owned a copy of the same book, which was Rubiot. Um, in 1945, at the Clifton Gardens Hotel in Sydney, she had given it to an Australian Army lieutenant named Alf Boxel, who was serving at the time in the water transport section of the Royal Australian Engineers. Thompson told police after the war ended, she had moved to Melbourne and married. She said that she had received a letter from Boxel and had replied telling him that she was now married. Now, subsequent research suggests that her future husband, Prosper Thomas, was in the process of obtaining a divorce from his first wife in 1949 and that he did not marry Jessica until the mid-1950s. Just FYI. Um... There is no evidence that Boxel had any contact with Jessica Thomas after 1945. 
As a result of their conversations with Thomas, police suspected that Boxel was the dead man. However, in July 1949, Boxel was found in Sydney, and the final page of his copy of that book, reportedly a 1924 edition published in Sydney, was intact with the words, Tamam should. Still in the place. So, that he was still alive and well. Boxel was now working in the maintenance section at the Radwick Bus Depot, um, where he had worked before the war, and was unaware of any link between the dead man and himself. In the front copy of his book that was given to Boxel, Jessica Harkins had signed herself Justin and written out the verse 70, which was indeed, indeed, Repentance oft before. I swore, but was I sober when I swore? And then, and then came spring, and rose in hand, my thread bare, penance a pieces tore. What that means, I have no idea, guys. <laughs> um, yeah. So, let's hop on to some, like, possible identifications of what they thought, maybe, um, of who this man was. Uh, who the deceased man was. Make it clear. So, let's move on. So, a number of possible identifications have been proposed over the years. On December 3rd, 1948, a day after the advertiser named him as the likely victim, E.C. Johnson identified himself at a police station. That same day, the news published a photograph of the dead man on its front page leading to additional calls from members of the public about a possible identity. By December 4th, police had announced that the man's fingerprints were not on South Australian police records, forcing them to look further. Um, on December 5th, the advertiser reported that police were searching through military records after a man claimed to have had a drink with a person resembling the dead man at a hotel in um, Glenegg. Um, on November 13th. Now, during their drinking session, the mystery man supposedly produced a military pension card bearing the name Solomonson. In early January 1949, two people identified the body as that of 63-year-old former woodcutter Robert Walsh. A third person, James Mack, also viewed the body, initially could not identify it, but an hour later, he contacted police and said it was Walsh. Max stated that the reason why he did not confirm this at the viewing was the difference in the hair color. Walsh had left Adeline, um, excuse me, Adelaide, Adeline? Y'all, I tell you, after, after reading it so many times, my brain just, just doesn't function. Uh, so just laugh at me and, you know, move on. Don't get, don't give me hell about it. Hmm. So, after Walsh had left Adelaide um, several months earlier to buy sheep in Queensland, but had failed to return at Christmas as planned, police were skeptical, believing Walsh to be too old to be the dead man. However, the police did state that the body was consistent with that of a man who had been a woodcutter. Although the state of the man's hand indicated he had not cut wood for at least 18 months. Any thoughts that a positive identification had been made were squashed. However, when Elizabeth Thompson, uh, one of the people who had earlier positively identified the man as Walsh, 
retracted her statement after a second viewing of the body where the absence of a particular scar on the body as well as the size of the dead man's legs led her to realize the body was not Walsh. So, by early February 1949, there had been at least eight different positive identifications of the body. Positive, take with a grain of salt. Obviously, it was not. Um, including two Darwin men who thought the body was of a friend, um, and others who thought it was a missing station worker, a worker at a steamship, or a Swedish man. Detectives from Victoria initially believed the man was um, from there because of the similarity of the laundry marks to those used by several day cleaning firms in Melbourne. Following publication of the man's autograph, excuse me, photograph in Victoria, 28 people claimed to know who he was. Victoria detectives disapproved all the claims and said that other investigations indicated it was unlikely that he was from Victoria. A seaman named Tommy Raid from the SS Cycle in Port at the time was thought to be the dead man, but after some of his shipmates viewed the body at the morgue, they stated that the corpse was not of their friend. Now, by November 1953, Police announced that they had recently received the um, 251st solution to the identity of the body from members of the public who claimed to have met or known him. But they said that the only clue of any value remained the clothing the man wore. So, never was identified by the public um, positively um, at that time. So... Nobody, everybody thought they knew who it was, but mm, turned out, no. Now, post-inquest in 1949, the body of the unknown man was buried in Adelaide West Terrence Cemetery, where the Salvation Army conducted the service. The South Australian Grandstand Bookmakers Association paid for the service to save the man from a um, pauper's burial. Years after the burial, flowers began to appear on the grave. Police questioned a woman seen leaving the cemetery, but she claimed she knew nothing of the man. About the same time, um, Ina Harvey, the receptionist from the um, Strathmore Hotel opposite of the Adelaide Railway Station, revealed that a strange man had stayed in room 21 or 23 for a few days around the time of the death checking out on November 30th, 1948. She recalled that he was an English-speaking and only carrying a small black suitcase, but not unlike um, one a musician or a doctor might carry. When an employee looked inside the suitcase, he told Harvey uh, he found an object inside the case he described as looking like a needle. On November 22, 1959, it was reported that E.B. Collins, an inmate of New Zealand's, I cannot pronounce this, guys, don't, don't make fun of me, Wanaguni uh, Prison? Y'all try to pronounce it. <laughs> I'll give it to you. Claimed to know the identity of the dead man. Um, in 1978, ABC TV, in its documentary series, Inside Story, produced a program on the um, 
Tamam Should case titled The Somerton Beach Mystery, where reporter Stuart Littlemore investigated the case, including um, interviewing Boxel, who could add no new information, of course, and Paul Lawson, who made the plaster cast of the body and refused to answer a question about whether anyone had positively identified the body. Weird. Anyway, um, 1940, excuse me, 1994, John Harper Phillips, Chief Justice of Victoria and Chairman of the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine, reviewed the case to determine the cause of death and concluded that there seems little doubt it was digitalis. Digitalis. I have to say it slow or I'll mess it up. Uh, Phillips supported his conclusion by pointing out that the organs were engorged or enlarged, uh, consistent with digitalis. The lack of evidence of natural disease and the absence of anything seen macroscopically which could account for death. Uh, guys, just so you know, I've been recording for like three hours. <laughs> uh, towards the end of the podcast, you'll notice I get a little tongue-tied. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Just bear with me. We're almost done. We're almost done. I swear. I swear. We'll take a break here in just a second, I guess. Um, but former South Australian Chief Superintendent Lynn Brown who worked on the case in the 1940s, stated that he believed that the man was from a country in the Warsaw Pact, which led to the police inability to confirm the man's identity. The South Australian Police Historical Society holds the plaster bus, which contains strands of the man's hair. Any further attempts to identify the body have been hampered by the embalming formaldehyde, having destroyed much of the man's DNA, unfortunately. Um, you think they would have took some DNA before, but whatever. I don't know. I'm just saying. Other key evidence no longer exists, such as the brown suitcase, which was destroyed in 1986. Like, why would you destroy that? Why? That's stupid. Anyway, in addition, witnesses' um, statements have disappeared from the police file over the years. So, pretty much, everything's just kind of went down the drain. <laughs> if you If you ask me. They, it's typical, you know, they care about it in the moment and then years pass and they're like, eh, do we really need to hang on to any of this? And then they throw everything away and then they never get solved. Yep. Typical. So, um, there was a theory though that this guy that was found, um, the deceased man, they thought he was like a spy for a minute because of the, um, like, circumstances and historical context of his death as well as that like um encryption you know that code or whatever that they said um uh, that they found in his pocket not the um tamad should thing but the actual like encrypted like letter that he wrote so they thought he was a spy for a while uh there were some other theories too if you guys want to look it up it was just unnecessary for me to cover those um but yeah so now there was a um like a exhumation um in october 2011 um that we're gonna go into right now 
All right, guys, let's take a little break. Uh, go to the bathroom, get some snacks and a drink, do whatever you got to do. Uh, come back and we're going to finish the episode. So October 2011, um, as an interest in the case, you know, came back, resurfaced, Attorney General John Rawl uh, refused to exhume the body, stating there needs to be a public interest reasons that go well beyond public curiosity or broad scientific interest. Now, Felta said he was still contacted by people in Europe who believed that the man was a missing relative but did not believe the um, exhumation and finding the man's family grouping would provide answers to relatives, as during that period, so many war criminals changed their names and became, excuse me, and came to different countries. In October 2019, um, Attorney General Vicki Chapman granted approval for his body to be exhumed to extract DNA for analysis. The parties interested in the analysis agreed to cover the cost. A potential granddaughter's DNA is planned to be compared to the unknown man to see if it is a match. Um, and the exhumation was carried out uh, May 19, 2021. Police stated that the remains were in a reasonable condition and were optimistic about the prospect of DNA recovery. The remains were deeper in the ground than previously thought. It was reported that the body was exhumed as part of Operation Persevere and Operation Persist, which are investigating historical unidentified remains in South Australia. The authorities have said that they intend to take DNA from the remains if possible. Dr. Ann Coxon, a forensic science South Australian, said, quote, The technologies available to us now is clearly light years ahead of the technologies and techniques available when the body was discovered in the late 1940s. And that test would be used every method at our disposal to try and bring closure to this enduring mystery. So, there was an Abbott investigation as well. In March 2009, a University of Adelaide team led by Professor Derek Abbott began an, um, an attempt to solve the case through cracking the code and proposing to exhume the body to test for DNA, like we had talked about a second ago. His investigations led to questions concerning the assumptions police made on the case. Abbott also tracked down the barber wax cotton of the period uh, that was found packaging variations um this may provide clues to the country where it was purchased remember that like um thread or whatever it was determined the letter frequency was considerably different from letters written down randomly the frequency was to be further tested to determine if the alcohol level of the writer could alter random distribution then they observed um that the format of the code also appeared to follow the quadrain format of Rubiet, leading them to theorize that the code was a one-time pad encryption algorithm. Excuse me. Copies of the book, as well as the Talmud and Bible, were being compared to the code using computers to get a statistical base for letter frequency. However, the code's short length meant the investigators would require the exact edition of the book used. 
With the original copy lost in the 1950s, researchers have been looking for a Fitzgerald edition. The team concluded that it was most likely that each letter was the first letter of a word, like we had stated earlier. An investigation had shown that the Sumterans Man autopsy report of 1948 and 1949 are now missing. And the Barr Smith Library's collection of Cleland's notes do not contain anything on the case. Macy Henberg, a professor of anatomy at the University of Adelaide, examined image of the Sumter man's ears and found that his um, upper ear hollow is larger than his lower ear hollow, a feature possessed by only 1-2% to of the Caucasian population. In May 2009, Abbott consulted with dental experts who concluded that the man had hypodontia, I think that's how you say it, a rare genetic disorder of both lateral incisors, a feature presented in only 2% of the general population. In June 2010, Abbott obtained a photograph of Jessica Thomason's eldest son, Robin, which clearly showed that he, like the unknown man, had not only a larger, um, like, upper ear hollow than the lower ear hollow, but he also had the same hypodentia. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong. I did look it up, just FYI. Still can't do it. Um, so, does he have a son? We'll never know. The chance that this was a coincidence has been estimated as between 1 in uh, 10 million or 1 in 20 million. The media have suggested that Robin Thompson, who was 16 months old in 1948 and died in 2009, may have been a child of either Boxel or the Summerton Man and passed off as Prosper Thomason's son. DNA testing would confirm or eliminate the speculation. Abbott believes an exhumation and an autosomal DNA test excuse me, could link the Somerton man to the short list of surnames, which, along with the existing clues to the man's identity, would be the final piece of the puzzle. After discovering that Robin Thomas died in 2009, Abbott contacted Rachel, the daughter of Roma Egan and Robin Thompson, who had been adopted and grew up in New Zealand. Abbott and Rachel married in 2010. They had three kids. The family has a painting of the Somerton man hanging in their home. Weird. Believing him to be family. I guess it's not weird, but weird. However, Rachel Egan's DNA has been analyzed and links were found to the grandparents of Prosper Thompson. In July 2013, Abbott released an artistic impression he commissioned of the Summerton Man, believing this might finally lead to an identification. Quote, All this time, we've been publishing the autopsy photo. It's hard to tell what something looks like from that, Abbott said. End quote. Um, December 2017, Abbott announced three excellent hairs at the right development stage for extracting DNA had been found on the plaster of the cast of the corpse and had been submitted for analysis to the Australian Center of Ancient DNA at the University of Adelaide. Processing the results could reportedly take up to a year. While much of the DNA is degraded, and in February 2018, the University of Adelaide team obtained a high-definition analysis of the mitochondrial DNA from the hair sample from the Sumter Man. They found that the Sumter Man 
um, Somerton man, excuse me, belonged to the um, haplogroup H4A1A1A, possessed by only 1% of Europeans. However, mitochondrial DNA is only inherited through a maternal line and therefore cannot be used to investigate a hereditary link between Rachel Egan, Abbott's wife, and the Summerton man. And finally, guys, we are at the end. This is the last piece of information I got for you, okay? So, Abbott claims to have identified the man. And this just happened, like, a month or two ago. So, on um, 7-26-2022, Abbott announced that he and genealogist Colin Fitzpatrick had determined that the man was Carl Charles Webb, an electrical engineer and instrument maker born on November 16, 1905, and Footscray in Melbourne, the youngest of six kids of Richard August Webb and Eliza Amelia Morris Grace. Abbott claimed his DNA identification from the strands of the hair found in the plaster death mask made by South Australian police in the late 1940s. Through investigation, genetic genealogy, matches were found for the descendants of two first cousins of Webb's, both on the paternal and on the maternal side indicating a high likelihood that the Somerton man was either Webb or possibly a brother of his. Webb had resided in Victoria and had a brother-in-law named Thomas Keene, who lived in a 20-minute drive away from him, which would explain the name on some of the clothes linked to the Somerton man. Remember the name tags in the laundry? Yeah. No death record for Webb exists. His last known records date to April 1947 when he left his wife, Dorothy Daphne Robertson, after which she filed for divorce. Excuse me. In 1951, Dorothy was reportedly living in Butte, South Australia, um, about 144 uh, km from Adelaide. Um, Adelaide, excuse me. According to Abbott, Webb had possibly... Track, tried to track her down. Abbott's research indicated Webb en enjoyed betting on horses, thus the coded message could be horse names. Webb was also fond of pottery and had written some of his own pottery. Huh. Lord have mercy. Poetry. Excuse me. Poetry. He was fond. He was fond of poetry, <laughs> and had written some of his own poetry, explaining the copy of the um. Reboot. Why can I never say this word, guys? Of the book that we discussed earlier. My brain's done at this point. It's been hours. <laughs> However, none of Webb's still living relatives had known him in person, nor are there any known photographs of him as, as of July 2022. Whew. Forensic Science South Australian, uh, South Australian, who were still investigating, declined to comment. South Australian police um, had not verified the result, but stated they were cautiously optimistic that this may be a breakthrough. A few days later, the ABC published photos of Webb's brother, Roy Webb, who died as a prisoner of war during World War II, claiming they resembled the Summerton Man. And that is all I got for you guys. So... 
it's possible this man has been identified, although it is not 100% confirmed. Um, the laundry link is a good link, I think, in my opinion. That makes sense. So, yeah, that's all I got for you today, guys. I hope you enjoyed. It took me forever, and I know I messed up a lot, but thank you for bearing with me, because after three to four hours of recording, my brain is uh, on, like, you know, rest mode. So, appreciate you guys. Thanks for coming back and listening, and I'll see you in a week. Well, guys, that's all for today's episode. Make sure you tune in bi-weekly. We are every other Monday for another riveting case where I will traumatize you more than you probably already are. <laughs> so, thank you for listening. Uh, don't forget to check out the Instagram at morbid period curiosity period TC podcast for photos related to each case that I cover. Feel free to send me spooky, crazy stories or case suggestions at morbidcuriositytcpodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to rate the podcast on Spotify and Apple Pod or whatever you're listening to us on. Um, I do appreciate all you spooky listeners. Please stay kind, stay spooky, and for the love of God, don't murder anyone. <laughs>